First John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. First John 4, we're actually going to look at the final verse of chapter 3 before we go into chapter 4. So we'll begin reading in uh, verse 24 of chapter 3 up through verse 6 of chapter 4. I hope you've been enjoying our series through First John. Already in chapter 4 now, there's only five chapters in First John. We will, as I've said before, continue. If you've noticed, if you flip a few pages to the right, there's a second John and there's a third John. We'll also cover those as well. He's, he's, we have three letters of John, pastoral letters. And if you notice, though, second John and third John are very short. Right? They're only one chapter each, and they actually, first one's only 13 verses, and the only, second one's 15 verses. So we'll take those probably as one in one uh, chunk, one sermon. But I hope you've been enjoying the series. This is a, a heartfelt pastoral letter of a pastor to his congregation, and probably many congregations uh, in that time. And, um, and I often will speak of chapter 5 as being sort of his purpose statement for why he wrote 1 John, but there's another purpose statement as well, and it's in 1 John 1. And he says in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, if you go to the beginning of the letter, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That joy is ultimately why he's writing this letter. That assurance, what I've talked about in the, in the weeks past, ought to lead us to joy, right? It ought to lead us to joy and satisfaction in the Lord. To know that we're assured of eternal life, to know that we're in God's family, that we are his children. So it's a reassuring letter. It's a letter of comfort. It's a letter that reminds us of who we are in Christ. So with that, would you please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word from chapter 324 to chapter 4, verse 6. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you please pray with me? Father, would you impart this knowledge to us now as we seek to know more about what it means to live in the Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled believer. So, Father, open our eyes and our ears, convict us, challenge us, and comfort us by the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My plan through chapter 4 is to take it in three parts. So this sermon will cover through verse 6, and then verse 7 through 12 we'll, we'll take in the second chunk, and then I'm going to take the final chunk, 13 through 21, in the third part. And the theme that's really connecting these three parts is, is the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. 
And what does it mean to be a Spirit-filled Christian? What does that mean, to be, to be filled with the Spirit? And in this part one sermon, we're really going to be looking at that a Spirit-filled Christian knows the truth from the error, that we know right from wrong, that we know the Holy Spirit versus a false teaching. And the second part, the second sermon is going to be the Spirit-filled Christian knows the God of love. And then the third part, third sermon, is going to be the Spirit-filled Christian loves others. Loves others. So, but in this first sermon, we're going to be looking at knowing the truth from error. Knowing the truth from error. I probably don't have to convince you that the whole the doctrine and and the notion of the Holy Spirit is is confusing by by many people are very confused by that idea. What is the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? Why do we believe in the Holy Spirit? Uh, and what does that look like? Um, you know, a lot of, and I, and I hope to clear a lot of that up, hopefully, with these sermons, and we'll see how it goes. Um, also, excuse my sniffling. I've, I've got a cold, and it just, I can't seem to knock it. Hannah or I can get rid of it, but, um, so I'll probably sniffle a little bit. But, you know, the, there's hours of work that goes into sermon prep. There's hours of work that goes into putting this worship service together and thinking and praying over what to say and, and how to say it and illustrations and applications and verses to look at. Um, and none of it will matter if the Spirit doesn't work. None of it will matter if the Spirit doesn't work through it. You could spend hours working on your kid's behavior, pointing them to Jesus, reading um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, teaching them gospel truth, but none of it will matter if the Holy Spirit isn't working in their heart. Think of the prayers that you've prayed for your family members who aren't believers over the years. Think of your friends you've been praying for. Think of the things you've said, the arguments you've made, the, uh, the defending the faith to them, trying to explain it from this angle, from that angle. None of that will matter if the Spirit isn't working. And think of your own salvation. When you believe, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you believed in Christ, that was the Spirit working in you. None of the arguments you heard really ultimately mattered unless the Spirit was there and applying it to your heart. That the truth is that we are utterly dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit for all things. Salvation for us, Think about the, the, the sins you've tried to defeat and overcome in your own life. None of that's possible without the Holy Spirit. Heart change, prayer for other people. Nothing good for a Christian can really happen apart from the Spirit. And so what should that do? It should drive us to our knees. If we're, not, if we're attempting great things for God, if we're trying to serve Him, trying to evangelize, trying to do great things, and we're not leaning upon the Spirit, and if we're not begging Him to act and to move, then we're powerless. The power comes through the Spirit. It comes through the working of the Holy Spirit. We're entirely dependent upon Him. And that's what John has really been teaching us throughout this letter, that the Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to live the Christian life. Enables. He makes it possible. If you look at a few of the mentions of the Holy Spirit, um, 
you know, he, he mentions it, that this anointing in chapter 2 um, is mentioning the Holy Spirit when he says that we are anointed with the truth. Look at verse 27 of chapter 2. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no one that anyone should teach you. This anointing teaches you about everything. And at the end of verse 3, or chapter 3 that I read this morning earlier, by this we know that he abides in us the spirit whom he has given us. So there's this fact as a believer that you already have the spirit working in you. You have the spirit abiding in you. Any good that you can do as a believer is really a result of the Holy Spirit already present working in you. But there's also, and that's the objective truth. There's also, though, a subjective truth. A subjective truth meaning something that we experience personally. And that is that the Spirit empowers us to live the Christian life. And, And you may be asking, should we pray? Should I pray to be filled with the Spirit? Is that a good prayer we should make for ourselves? And yes, we should. That there are certain times of the day, certain times of the week, where we are more filled with the Spirit than other times. Right? And that is how we're abiding in the Spirit, how we are filling ourselves with spiritual truth. If we're not doing that, then we're not filled with the Spirit. I think of Paul's words in Galatians 5, verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we have the Spirit abiding in us, but are we keeping in step with it? Right? Are we walking alongside the Spirit? Is it leading us? Ephesians 5, he says, 518, and do not get drunk with wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So how do we do that? How do we do that well? Who is a Spirit-filled Christian? Well, the main point, that we're seeing in our verses this morning, that a spirit-filled Christian knows the truth from error, knows the truth from error. And I've got three points. It's actually in your out, I've got an outline that we're putting in your uh, bulletin right now, so you can follow along with those points. And that is, the first one is that a spirit-filled Christian is a discerning Christian. That's the first point. The second point is that a spirit-filled Christian is a word-filled Christian And the spirit-filled Christian is a victorious Christian. So we're going to look at each one of those points this morning. Well, first, the spirit-filled Christian is a discerning Christian. Look at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. What does he mean by that? Well, essentially what he's saying is, People are going to claim that they have the truth. They're going to claim that they have the Spirit. But you shouldn't automatically believe that, right? Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every teaching. You see, early in the early church, John was dealing with this group that had been in the church and through their teaching uh, proved not to be real followers of Christ. They were teaching another gospel and they departed from the church. And he's dealing with this faction, this this other group that's left the church. And he's saying, look, um, not everybody who says they're a Christian, not everybody who says they're a prophet or teacher is, is that. You have to test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Not everyone who says they have the spirit is speaking truthfully. And you know, we can also think of people who have a great passion for God. We can think of people who, of the more charismatic bent, who who 
um, you know, wave flags in worship, raise hands, run around, have a great zeal, have a great passion for God. But that doesn't automatically mean that what they are saying or what they teach is spirit-filled. And don't hear me saying that, you know, emotion and passion is, is bad. That's not what I'm saying. You know, I love it when I see people raise hands in worship. I love it when we, there should be an expression of emotion when we hear the gospel, when we hear truth, when we hear God, um, when we exalt in God, that there should be an emotional aspect to it. But passion does not automatically equal spirit-filled, if that makes sense. I'm reminded of Romans 10, too, where Paul says, speaking of the Jews, they have a zeal for God, zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, right? A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. When you come into worship and to be spirit-filled doesn't mean you turn off your brain. It doesn't mean that you're totally uh, emotion-filled and passion-filled and you're not thinking. Really what's happened and what should happen is the spiritual truth The glory of the gospel should cause us to have passion, right? Truth should cause us to have passion. The spirit is fully engaged with what is true. And so John also says, test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I don't know if you guys remember May 21st, 2011. May 21st, 2011. Is that... I don't know if that date rings a bell for anybody around here, but there was a, a man who, back in May 21st, 2011, and I remember this, had put up billboards all around the country saying that this was Judgment Day, that it was May 21st, it was going to happen. His name was Harold Camping. He had you know, millions of followers, millions of people who listened into his radio program, and he was convinced that May 21st was when Jesus was coming back. And this was Judgment Day. The rapture was going to happen that day. His independent Christian media empire spent millions of dollars, some of it from donations made by followers who quit their jobs and sold all their possessions to spread the word on more than 5,000 billboards and 20 RVs plastered with judgment, this Judgment Day message. I remember, I remember the billboards uh, around Virginia. But as you guys know, Judgment Day wasn't on May 21st, 2011. We, we made it through. What he foresaw did not materialize. The preacher revised his prophecy after May 21st, saying that he'd been off by five months. So he went back to the drawing board, looked at scripture. But sadly, he, he suffered a stroke three weeks after the May prediction. And, but he said the light dawned on him that instead of the biblical rapture in which the faithful would be swept up to the heavens... The date had instead been a spiritual judgment day, which placed the entire world under Christ's judgment. But after the cataclysmic event did not occur in October either, Campic acknowledged his apocalyptic prophecy had been wrong, posted a letter on his ministry site telling his followers he had no evidence the world would end anytime soon and wasn't interested in considering future dates. We realize, he said, that many people are hoping that they will know the date of Christ's return and we humbly acknowledge we were wrong about the timing. But at least he admitted his, wrongdo- his, uh, his false prophecy there. Um, and, it just, it, you know, and he's not the first one to do this. This has happened you know, for centuries. Every generation usually has somebody who predicts you know, when it can happen. And, and I think it's amazing because they, 
conveniently skip over the verse where Jesus says that no one knows the hour when the judgment day will occur. Not even the sun, he says. But we want to continually find it out. But what's ultimately sad about that is, is the people that he led astray, thinking that this was what it was all about, that, that all my Bible reading, all my study of God's word leads to this. And so it begs the question, who are you listening to? Who are we listening to? Who, who are, whose teaching are we sitting under? Look at verse 5 and 6. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. So ask yourself the question, whose opinions hold weight for you? Whose teaching do you sit under? Who you listen to matters. Are your teachers rooted in biblical truth? Or are they creating truth for themselves? And this is the standard you need to hold myself to, and you need to hold your elders to as to what we're teaching, as to what our denomination is teaching, right? Always be judging it according to Scripture. Be careful who's teaching you're under, you and your family, who you're putting them on. And this is more than just the church. Who are you listening to in culture? What news outlets are you, are you listening to? How is that affecting your heart, right? Are they explaining the world for you in a way that, that grabs, grabs more of a worldview than the Bible does? Are you listening to the world? And the world, and I don't say this lightly, uh, is catechizing you. The world is catechizing you. It's catechizing me. And what catechize means, it's the old Greek word for teach. Right? The world is teaching you. It's trying to indoctrinate you uh, in its ways. What are some of the main points of the world's indoctrination and catechism? Number one, follow your heart. Right? That is, that's rule number one. Follow your heart. Do what pleases you. You are your own truth right? That what is true for you is really ultimate truth for everybody. That, that's another major point that the world teaches us. And not just you, it teaches your kids through media and movies and shows. That is the indoctrination we're experiencing. So if, if we're being catechized by culture, which we are, we need to fight back. We need to fight back with the catechism of our own. And friends, we're, if we're Presbyterians, we have a catechism. So don't, don't forget, if you're Presbyterian, you've got a Presbyterian catechism. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we can get you a copy. And all a catechism is, it's a summary of Scripture. It's a, in an easy-to-memorize fashion, teaching scriptural truths to you and, your, and, and to your heart. So, so build a catechism, I would argue, into your daily devotional time, Right? to your family time of devotion. Build that into, get a copy, read it alone and also with your families. And remember, it takes effort. All this work of learning and growing and being discerning takes effort. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not easy. But rejecting discernment as a believer is sort of like trying to drive your car without gas in it. And I know many of you right now don't want to go to the gas station. Right, I'm right there with you. But if you don't go to the gas station and don't fill up at least a quarter tank, you're not going to get very far, right? unless you have a Tesla. <clears throat> You've got to get refilled. You've got to get refilled. And to do that, you have to be discerning. So a spirit-filled Christian is one who is discerning. 
But also remember, this is a corporate endeavor and not just a go-it-alone endeavor. Look at verse 6 again. He says, he says we. Look at that word, we, that, that first-person plural word. We are from God. Whoever, listens, whoever knows God listens to us. This is corporate language, that we are together in this. You're not alone. Commentator uh, Douglas O'Donnell says that the call here is for a congregation of Bereans. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, who examine the scriptures every day to see if what is said is true. That we are to be, a, we do that communally, we do that corporately as a body of believers, studying the word together. We do it together. Discernment is learned behavior, right? We learn it from seeing it modeled to us in church. But we have to be together to do that. And so that's the first idea, that you know whether or not the Spirit's from God by the truth it proclaims. And this really leads us to our second point, that the Spirit-filled Christian is a Word-filled Christian. A Word-filled Christian. Look at verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So that's the first test, he says. How do you know if the spirit's from God? It confesses Jesus. And then again in verse 6, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That's the second test. Right, so the first is that it confesses Jesus, and the second is that it listens to us, and we'll talk about who the us is and what that means in a minute. So the Spirit of God confesses Christ. Friends, the Holy Spirit's main job is to highlight the person and work of Christ. That's what he does. He doesn't take the glory for himself. He casts the spotlight on Christ. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit loves to do most, is shine the light on Jesus in John 15, Jesus spoke about this. He said in John 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, that's how we like to talk about the Holy Spirit, the helper, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, Jesus said. He will bear witness about me. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to point to Christ. And so you get this combination of the Spirit and the Word. You can't separate the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and, and the Spirit's actions and the Word go together. Colin Cruz, a commentator, says, John has portrayed the role of the Spirit primarily as testimony to the tradition, not as a source of new revelation. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you're not writing a new Bible. You're not adding more books to the Bible. You're not speaking new revelation you're pointing back to what's already written right here in our word. That, that's what it means to be spirit-filled. You point back to God's word, back to God's truth, and not the creation of new revelation. Sean O'Donnell says, we're not missing some spirit-filled experience when we only read and teach the Bible. There's not a time for the spirit with the singing and praying. So earlier in the service, it was not like that. that's the time of the Spirit and now's the time for the Word. No, this is also the time for the Spirit to hear the preaching of the Word. To be led by the Spirit in corporate worship or in private devotion is to be led back to the inspired apostolic testimony. And when I say apostolic, I mean the apostles, those who wrote these words, who were inspired of the Holy Spirit. 
So let us not divide this God-ordained union of the Spirit and the Word. Friends, hearing the Word taught and preached is a Spirit-filled activity. What you're doing right now is a Spirit-filled activity because you're rooting yourself in the Word and you're hearing it taught and you're hearing it preached. And that's where the Spirit likes to, um, to activate our senses, to convict us and to challenge us and to comfort us. We hear about this idea of the prophet of God speaking his word and, and, and the measure and the standard of what a prophet is in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses writes up this explanation of this prophet who's going to come in the future, speaking of Jesus, who's going to come as this prophet, who's going to speak God's word. And you know, other prophets did come and they were concerned, how do we know who's a true prophet or not? And so in Deuteronomy 18, he writes, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So that was the standard for a true prophet of God. Number one, was he following God's word? Was he adding to it? Was he changing it? Was he contradicting it? Right? then the Spirit was not working in that prophet. As well as, did he say things that came to pass or not come to pass? That's a, that's a way also to know. But it's always rooted in the truth of God. The measure of a prophet in the Old Testament was how aligned are his words with God's words, right? And that's where the Spirit is active in God's word. The Spirit, Sam Storm says, the Spirit is given to shine a light upon Jesus and direct the focus of our heart's confidence and adoration on him alone. Because friends, what does the word ultimately point to? What is the main point of, of this book? It, it all points to, to one person. It all points to Jesus and how we can be saved. If you miss that, you're missing the point of the book. You're missing the point of God's revelation. And John is saying as much in our text, that if, if the Spirit does not confess Christ, then it's not from God. But he also says in verse 3, <clears throat> well, this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. The Spirit that does not confess Jesus. So how do we know um, when it's the Spirit of the Antichrist? It's when it's rejecting Christ. O'Donnell says, our age has produced a decaying intellectual environment that has no use for truth, no interest in a transcendent God, and indeed no way to conceptualize any notion of revelation. The question, who is Jesus, though, remains. But because there is no interest in the quest for truth, added to it are questions such as, who cares who Jesus was? And why does it matter who he was? And aren't there many ways to experience God? And in the end, who can know truth anyway? So that's where our culture has really gone, right? 
not really countering Jesus in particular, but saying, what does it all matter? Can't we, can't we all be friends? Can't we all get along? Aren't there many ways to experience God? What's the purpose of Jesus? Who can know truth, right? Throw up their hands. That's, where we, that's really where we are culturally. Not really an antagonism toward Christ, but really more of a, almost like a false humility, like, oh, I would not want to, I would not want to presume and say I know what truth is. But friends, that's a false humility. That's, that's actually anti-truth because God has made his truth clear. It's very clear. He did not, uh, he does not waffle around what is true and what is false, that Jesus is the only way. He was very clear about that. We as well can't waffle around that truth. We, we can't get around that. God's very clear about what is true and what is false and that it ultimately Christ is what we need and that sin is real and that rebellion against God is real. But the point here is that the gospel of Christ and the Spirit work together. Paul said in Galatians 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see what Paul is uh, contrasting? He's contrasting works of the law with hearing with faith, the gospel and works, that the Spirit is in the gospel, hearing by faith, that you can't complete the Christian life by trying to keep all the rules. That's, that is, that is anti-Spirit. You know, yesterday I went to a graduation party um, at the Krauskies. It was great. And, and, not, and there's, this is the time of the year where kids are graduating all the time. Right? It's happening every weekend. There's cookouts and graduation from high school. It's a great day. It's a celebration. But I want to tell young kids that are here, if you haven't graduated yet, maybe, or if you, or if you are graduating, you don't graduate from the gospel. You don't graduate from the gospel. You continually go back to it every day. Every morning, you need to hear the words of grace and forgiveness. Why? Because we will battle our sin every day. You don't graduate from the gospel. There's a statement, I don't know if it's direct, directly linked to Luther, but it's attributed to Luther. He was asked by one of his, Martin Luther was asked by one of his members, congregation members, why do you preach the gospel to us every Sunday? And his answer was, because you forget it every Sunday. That's why I preach it to you every, every Sunday. And I do too. I need to hear it afresh every morning. The gospel again and again. And again, it takes work. This takes effort. This is the discipline of a spirit-filled Christian. Richard Lovelace said, In our quest for the, for the fullness of the spirit, we have sometimes forgotten that a spirit-filled intelligence is one of the powerful weapons for pulling down satanic strongholds. Right, doing that mental work, really digging into God's truth, going into Bible studies and digging and reading good books, meaty doctrinal books. Strive, brothers and sisters, to learn as much as you can about God's word. That is the mark of a spirit-filled Christian. It's not someone who turns off reading the Bible and, and just tries to spend time only in prayer, but it's time in the word. That is where the spirit really works. That's where the spirit works. But it's also um, a spirit-filled Christian submits to the authority of Scripture. Look at verse 6 one more time. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
So who is the us there? Well, the us certainly is the community of John, right? The community of the church. There's a very us and them mentality here as he's talking about those who broke away from the church. But it's also this idea of the authority that he had. Why did John have authority? He had authority because Jesus told him to go and write these words, these words of Scripture. This, this book, these, these letters have scriptural divine authority because it's written from the hand of an apostle, meaning a sent one from Jesus. That these, yes, they're John's words, but they're really Jesus' words to us. And so we're to submit, at any time we read the Bible, we're to submit ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. We read the Bible with humility. Right? We don't read the Bible um, like we're over, over it, examining it, being critical of it. Actually, it is to examine us. It's to be over us. And that's how we're to study and read it. Read it with an effort to humbly submit to it. Third and final point, that the spirit-filled Christian is a victorious Christian. So we're discerning, we are word-filled, and we're victorious. We're victorious. Where do I get that? Look at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You, I know some of you guys hear that and you're, you're skeptical because you're like, I don't feel very victorious right now. <laughs> I'm struggling here. Right? I've had a cold for two weeks. Um, you know, I've got car troubles. I've had job troubles. Life is difficult. I've got marital strife. Um, I've got trouble with my kids. Right? This is, these are all the things we deal with on a, on a daily basis. Life doesn't feel victorious, does it, sometimes? Not all the time. But what we have to remember is that there are spiritual realities that we often forget. Right? What we deal with on a daily basis is not really all, that, all the story. Right? That's not the whole story. What we're dealing with, the difficulties we have in life, there's more to the story. And what John is trying to do is say, look at these realities, and this is why you're victorious. Well, first he says, we're from God. I mean, just that statement alone tells you all you need to know, that you are a child of God that you're a part of his family, right? That's a, good, that's a good side to be on. That's a victorious team right there. Have you, ed, have you read the end of Revelation? Right? Jesus wins. And if he wins, you're on his side. Therefore, you're victorious and you've overcome. We are from God. Say that to yourself every day. Don't forget to tell that to yourself. We are from God. I am from God. You are spiritually born again and belong to a different community. He also says that we have a greater power in us than that's in the world. Look again at verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He already spoke like this in this way earlier, and he says that God is greater than our hearts. So he's greater than our hearts, but we're also, he is greater than the world. He's conquered both our hearts and the world. And again, this contrast with the world. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised when the world misunderstands, is confused by, or blatantly rejects God's word. It's going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. If the world rejects God's word, it will reject God's people. You will be rejected by the world. John 15, 21, Jesus said, But all these things they will do to you 
on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Right? We're included in that. The world does not like truth when it rejects it. But here's the good news. We have a Savior who's overcome the world. We have a Savior who's overcome the world. That word overcome in the Greek is the same word for the shoes that you probably own, Nike. Nike, which means victory. The Greek word to overcome, to triumph. Right? That's the word, that we have a victor. Hear these awesome words from John 16, Jesus' own words. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered and each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me, and I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You believe that? Jesus has overcome the world. That he's triumphed, that he's won, that he's defeated our enemies, that he's the victor, and he is our victory. If you're you're linked to him in faith, you're linked with his victory. And what's true for him is true for you. So what does the spirit-filled victory look like in the Christian life? What does it look like? Well, number one, it looks humble. It looks humble. If we've been given all things in Christ, if our fate is secured, our destiny is assured in him, now we have time to elevate others around us and not ourselves. That we don't spend our days and our hours thinking namely about ourselves. But we think about how can I help my brother and sister in Christ? How can we do that well to elevate others? It looks humble. That's what victory looks like. Secondly, it looks like death. The cross is where victory was achieved. It looks like death. And this is true for Christ and it's true for the believer that we're called to die to self. This is not an easy task. It's not a light calling, but it is what we're called to. If we are victorious, if we have already died in Christ, then we can die to ourselves and take up our cross. That's what victory looks like. It looks like death. It also looks faithful. Thirdly, it looks faithful in thankfulness. We live our lives now in thankfulness for grace. We strive to live faithfully, confessing and repenting along the way in the supernatural strength and sure victory. Christ. And that is where John's going to go in chapter 5. If you just read ahead a few verses, in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how does our faith overcome? How does it triumph? Because our faith is connected to Christ. Think about it, the fingers of your faith are beholding and are gripping the object of your salvation. That is, that is why faith overcomes. So it looks humble, it looks like death, it looks faithful, but it also looks joyful. This is how I began uh, the message, thinking about that this has all been written so that we will be filled with joy. That, isn't that a, an awesome idea, that your Father in heaven doesn't just want to impart truth to you, but he wants to see joy on your face that Christians ought to be the most joyful people in the world because of what we've been given. Assurance, victory leads to joy. And that's what he wants for his people. But ultimately, what does a spirit-filled victory look like for a Christian? It looks like Jesus. 
It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus when he said in John 19 on the cross, it is finished. And what did he mean by that? He's achieved everything for you, that there's nothing left to do to save yourself. There's nothing you could do. It's finished. It's all been purchased. And he reigns over the world. He's overcome the world. He's overcome death. He's overcome Satan for you. That is what victory looks like. So how do you, how do you become spirit-filled as a Christian? You become discerning. You become word-filled. And you remember your victory is in Christ alone. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you so much for loving us enough to tell us these things, that you don't leave us in the dark, but you show us again and again where uh, we have achieved assurance, where we've achieved victory, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's where we see love. It's where we see um, your, your heart. So we thank you so much for all you've done for us. Would you root us in that truth as we seek to grow, as we seek to put to death our sins and our old self and become alive more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit to your grace and to your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.